Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That? With me, Dave Moore, and him, Neil Delamere. And we're kicking off this episode with possibly the most exciting news we've ever brought you. Oh, why would you tell me that, audience? Do you like podcasts? More importantly, do you like free stuff? Would you like to combine your two great loves of podcasts (laughs) and free stuff? We are doing a live podcast recording. (laughs) I'm actually... I'm quite nervous about this. Not, I'm not nervous about the other audience members being there and, and doing a podcast. Just that you and I, Neil, have never done a podcast in the same room. We've always been remote. Yeah. We began this whole thing during lockdown. It made sense to continue doing it in lockdown because it worked so well. The one time we tried to do it in the same room, we couldn't for audio purposes, and we ended up in a different room. So I don't know. I'm just really nervous about sitting beside you. Is this this thing where, you know, if you meet your younger self, like Back to the Future, I'm going to meet you in real life and then look over your shoulder and see myself slowly dissolve from a photograph <laughs> behind your head. Go, Oh, my God. But I think I can't wait to see the people who listen to this. I want to meet the audience. Oh, uh, so do I. So do I. No, okay, OK. So we should say a couple of things. We should explain. Neil, tell everyone why we're doing a live podcast. We are doing it because we cover many things, including science. We do history and geography and business and economics. But we're going to concentrate and science because as part of science week in association with the science foundation ireland we are going to be doing a live podcast and double doctor lara dungan from season one series one is back she's going to tell us about ghrelin the hunger hormone why you get hungry how you get hungry what affects it what you can do about it if anything this this is what i love like when neil and i put our heads together and we go okay live show we need somebody who can really wow the audience Let's get the person we know who's not a doctor once, but is a doctor twice. And double doctor Lara is going <laughs> to completely blow everyone's mind. I can't wait. Uh, double doctor and TV presenter of Eco Eyes. So many strings to her bow. We got a great reaction when she did Epo um, uh, in season one. So we thought, why change a winning team? Exactly. Okay, so we should tell people where it's on, when it's on, and how they can get tickets. Because by the way, as Neil said, you like free stuff. The tickets are free. Yeah, tickets are free, but they must be reserved. Yes, reserve them in advance. It is going to happen in the Viking Theatre in Clontarf in Dublin, in Ireland, if you're one of our international listeners. Uh, it's going to be on November 20th. And please go to eventbrite.ie, search Why Would You Tell Me That, and reserve your tickets, and we'll see you in person for an amazing podcast about Graylin on the 20th of November. 
And you can also check out our socials. I'm at Neil Delamere Comedy. He's at Dave Today FM. This is on Instagram. And we are at Why Would You Tell Me That? We will put that link as the bio in our socials. Right. On to the pressing matters of this episode. Neil Delamere, what have you got for us? So, Dave, let's get yeah. into this. You know when you were a kid, you were at school, and there's a big wall chart of the world behind your head. Yeah. Right? That's wrong. That's wrong. Yeah, it was wrong. <laughs> so the thing my teachers were teaching me mm. was wrong. Yeah. It was wrong in very specific ways as well. Oh. Everything you thought you knew was a lie, Dave. A lie. <laughs> Italy's shaped like a clog. They're lying to you. It's not. It's, it's actually shaped like a boot. Right? But in part two, we'll talk to Nicholas Crane, who's a geographer, uh, an author, a sailor, and a TV presenter on that show, Coast. You know on BBC? Oh, I do know him. He's brilliant. Yeah. So he's going to explain why the map is wrong. I used that word in inverted commas. It is, it's wrong. It's wrong, Dave. I was going to say, like two seconds ago, you were super like determined it was wrong, that everything I knew was a lie. Now you're putting it in inverted commas and sounding a little bit less convinced. No, it's wrong. Okay, okay, okay. It's it's full it's fully wrong. But fully there wrong. are other ones that are equally as wrong. <laughs> okay, lots of wrong happening in the world of wall charts. Uh see if I can interest you in a little bit of Belgian uh factage. How about that? Okay. Because the man who invented this map that we're going to talk about being wrong is called Mercator. And he grew up near Antwerp. So I was looking about Belgian facts and the history of Belgium. Let me ask you this. What is the connection between the Belgian Congo and the Irish Air Corps? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's if you get this right, we're just gonna stop this podcast and I'm bringing you on the road as a medium, basically. The Belgian Congo and the Irish Air Corps. Oh, I, I actually I know this. I know this. Do you? Yeah. They both lost at the Atai Bridge competition in 1974. I mean, it was a it was a very competitive year, nineteen seventy four. Yeah, believe it or not, that's not the connection. Wow, you you should know that you you because I know for a fact on your radio show you have been to Baldon Lairdrum, which is where the Irish Air Corps train basically. And yeah, I was a guest of the Irish Air Corps because they heard that for Christmas one year I got myself an Xbox uh, and I got myself one game, yeah. just one game. Some would argue it's not even a game, and it is Microsoft Flight Simulator twenty twenty, and all I do is I sit on my sofa, I turn out the lights, and in real time, count it, in yeah. real time, I fly wherever I need to fly. So, for example, to Belgium. Dublin to Belgium would probably take about two hours. So, in real time, it takes two hours for me to fly from Dublin to Belgium and hopefully land. And if I don't land, I restart and I go again. You don't actually do this, do you? I 100% actually do this. It is one of the most satisfying, incredible pieces of technology I've ever experienced. When you're flying, or yeah. like it shows you on the screen what it would look like if you were on the flight. No, in the cockpit. Like you're obviously yeah. not, it doesn't, not going to show me what it's like at the passenger. I don't care about them. <laughs> no, actually, and, and weirdly, it can. But yeah, no, it, you're in the cockpit. So outside of the window, you have whatever the real-time weather is at whatever time you're flying. That's, so if that's it's, what I mean, yeah. yeah. So if it's like 8 o'clock at night and a winter's night, it's black, it's dark, and the lights are on, and I have to take off in the dark, and I have to land in Belgium in the dark. And yes, everything is... In, and it won't work unless you fly the plane correctly. It's not like when you're playing... Can you pause the game? You can pause the game. All yes, right, well, that's can. not real, is it? 
No, that isn't real. I, I've, I've tried it, and yeah, you can definitely can't pause an aircraft. <laughs> now, how realistic is it? Can you get to pick like the brand of company that you fly for? Yes, like you if, can. can. Can you set like like the aggression level up on if it's a Ryan airplane? Like, can you can you just sort of <laughs> how into it do you get? Do you make announcements? I bet you do. I bet you sit there on your own going, "This is uh, Captain Dave Moore here now, ladies and gentlemen." This is Captain Dave Moore here, just letting you know that we're going to be taking off on the E thirty runway here at Dublin Airport, making our way across the Irish Sea. Across the UK and then to Belgium, we should be uh, flying time around uh, two hours today. Uh, we outside temperature. Down. Outside temperature. Right now, outside it is uh, thirteen degrees. When we're landing in Brussels, we're expecting it to be about uh, maybe fourteen, fifteen degrees in this evening. Uh, and I'll update you as we're uh, from the flight deck later on, something like that. Yeah, yeah. If I if I was a pilot, I would mix the up. The same if it was a tour guide. I'd be like, uh, uh, if you look at your left now, you can see where uh, Jesus was condemned to death by Skeletor. <laughs> there, there's a flight announcement or a tour guide announcement I would actually be really interested in. <laughs> and the other thing is, sorry, just to advance really quickly, and I know you've got more things to talk about, but just very quickly, where the game gets really amazing yeah. is when you turn off what I do. So I fly solo. I fly like it's just me and I just do whatever. And if I land, I land. If I crash or whatever. You can go into a multiplayer scenario where you can be the pilot. You need to make an essence. But then there are real people somewhere else in the world controlling air traffic control. So you could be flying and you're going, I'm going to Brussels. And you will literally hear, this is Brussels Tower contacting EI525. Uh, you're clear for landing. And, and like, obviously, sometimes it's all perfectly above board. And sometimes it's just lads who are having like 70 points in the gaff and they're on air traffic control. It's one of the funniest things you'll ever see is drunken air traffic control on Microsoft Flight Simulator. I have never heard of this, and it sounds like the single most tedious thing that you have ever told me <laughs> in my entire life until that last bit. That last bit is drunken air traffic control. I would fully have a go at that. Hey, you are not, this is the Dublin Tower. You're not allowed to land there because there's a board strike. You've seen how big uh, seagulls can get. Well, one of them is after hijacking the Ryanair flight to Tarmelinus <laughs> and is currently flying it into an Aer Lingus plane to make a bleeding point. Come back later. Flight EIEIO is flying around the homeland in a, in a holding pattern. We've looked at the at the pattern on the sonar, and it's actually uh, the Ryanair harp. So stick up your hole. And You've done this before, Neil. I know you have. God, but no, because look, look, like flying a plane in real time. That sounds horrendous, right? And then these there lads, like, how? Where do you want to bring that to? Is there a fella outside your house with two ping pong bats? Just directing you to sit on your couch is there some older businessman just flirting inappropriately with a young air stewardess? Is there a young couple fucking the hoop off each other in your downstairs bathroom? How far no, is this? this is there is an all... angry looking man with just a case that was clearly too big to put on the plane? I want to know all these things. No. It's just suddenly disgruntled. You know the emergency exit? I was yeah. in the emergency exit yesterday and they said, you know, I've always wondered this. They don't say, are you able to open that door in the event of, of an emergency? They say, are you willing to open <laughs> that door in the event of an emergency? And I'm like, who says no? Who goes, no, if it is the will of God that we're going to crash, I'm not going to get in this way. And if we land, if we land relatively safely, but then the only way out is through this door, I will sit here and not say no until someone else comes up and opens it for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure this is easier on other flights, but this is the flight to Lourdes. So <laughs> this is going to be more difficult than you expect. <laughs> well, I think you're missing out on what I'm hoping to graduate to in 2023. 
I'm really hoping I graduate to a transatlantic flight. I thought you were going to say transit van. Like, no. What? There's no transit van simulator as far as I know. There is farming simulation. So real-time farming. So you plant your potatoes in April and you harvest in September. But this is real-time. You can't harvest in April. Like, potatoes aren't ready. How accurate is it? Like, do you, can you go to the plowing championship? Is there a road frontage setting on it where you, <laughs> you can go to a disco and uh, just exaggerate your road frontage for a girl you're trying to pick up or a guy you're trying to pick up at the disco? But on the same dial, you have to dial it down for the revenue or for the EU grants. <laughs> Yeah, you can only exaggerate your road frontage if you get one of those special bottles that you find in a crate somewhere that you can drink and it ups your game and you can go, right, now I can exaggerate the road frontage by 80 metres. That's absolutely amazing. But they, like, they, you know, they get, so certain farmers get paid set aside. So they get paid money not to do something. Mm. So basically uh, not to grow a crop on that particular field, right? So you right, could, right. in the game, you could play set aside in the game. So you could play a game where you don't do anything that represents <laughs> somebody who doesn't do anything. You still get the points. Oh, my God. You see, I told you it's real farming. <laughs> if there's any real farmers listening to this, please, once you finish your grant application, get in touch with us and uh, and you can have a go if you want. But uh, tell us what it's like. By the way, I could say this because my father was a farmer for many years. Oh, okay. Well, then you're, you're qualified to slag them off. <laughs> Let me loop away from farmers back to the original question I asked you back in 1985 when we started <laughs> this conversation. When the cap agreement wasn't even a thing. <laughs> Baldon Aerodrome is also called. Oh, Casement. Yes. So, Casement Aerodrome, named after Roger Casement, like Casement Park in uh, Belfast and many other things. Executed, obviously, he was by Perfidious Albion uh, for trying to import weapons for the rebellion in Ireland. Sir Roger Casement. Before that, he was in the UK Civil Service. He was in the Belgian Congo, which was a colony, a personal colony of the king. And he wrote the report uh, detailing the horrendous human rights abuses in the country became known as the casement report no idea that they were related in any way amazing yeah 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 there you go now let me ask you this have you ever left a job very quickly after you started uh yes i have how long did you last i lasted i was supposed to last three months in the summer i lasted four days what was the job aircraft simulator engineer (laughs) no uh the job was to build National Lottery Machines. What? In 1993. Now, when I say build, sorry. Assemble National Lottery Machines. So, anyone, so in Ireland in the 90s, what happened was we got the lottery and we were all very excited. And then they got this thing where instead of just handing over the money and, and like when you scribbled in your thing, whatever, you could run an infrared pen over a, a barcode and it would scan your entry or whatever. I can't remember how it worked. But the point was, this was made of a brown piece of assembled metal onto which you needed to screw one machine at the top that I think printed out the lottery thing and one machine in the bottom that was where the pen was and it was the technology or whatever, right? And all we had to do, myself and three of my friends, in a warehouse in Blake's Cross in North County, Dublin, was screw the two machines to the metal plates and then plug one into the other. That was it. And we did, like, we were supposed to do, I don't know, 80 each a day. I think on the first day we did five between us. And then we eventually got given out and we sped up. And by the fourth day, the Thursday, they came and they took all of our machines. And guys in cars drove all around the country. And they put them into the test sites. 
and they plugged it in and they went, go. And the entire system crashed <laughs> because we had plugged the input of the wrong machine into the output of the other machine instead of the wrong other way around. And everything crashed and we were sacked immediately. You lads had access to lotto machines. So rather than plan some elaborate criminal mastermind where you could actually take the lotto for millions, you complete spanners yeah. attached the wrong bit to the wrong bit and lost the job. You're an absolute disgrace, you know that. And oddly yeah. enough, if they invented a game where you could sim- simulate putting lotto machines together, you would do it. Assembling lotto Four days is longer than the King of Belgium lasted in 1990. He abdicated for a day. What? Yeah. He just left for a day. went, nah, nah, not feeling it, lads. So, sorry, he left after a day or he left for one day and then came back? He left for one day for a very specific reason. Did he want to just, you know, see what it was like to be a pauper and then go, <laughs> yeah. that was terrible. Oh, I'm going back, straight back. So- Oh, that'd be so cool if he did it like the Victoria. He dressed up and walked among his people to find out what it was really like. Realised it was awful and went back to his palace. No, what happened was um, he's very, he, he's dead now, but he was very um, Catholic, okay. uh, very devout Catholic. And he had to sign into law, a law that allowed abortion. And he went, my conscience doesn't allow me to do this. Uh, so I'm going to I'm gonna fake off for a day, lads. And um, the government issued a statement saying that it, it, it had declared him unable to reign, which they did last time during the, during the war. Right. And um, the cabinet assumed King Bodwin's, that was his name, his powers, and introduced the law. And then they held a joint session of the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate on the Thursday, uh, like 36 hours later, and he came back and was the king again i mean i'm all for respecting people's religious beliefs and everything but like this is literally just putting your hands over your eyes and your ears and going la 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 until the bad thing happens and then you can go back to your normal life and believe in what you believe in like i'm not feeling that one i'm not feeling that one at all if you didn't like the king abdicating that much i have got a fact that i think you will love hey hit me the symbol of brussels is that little boy statue having a piss into the fountain. Right? If for real, yeah? That's actually yeah, the symbol well, of Brussels. I mean, I'm, I'm saying it's the symbol of Brussels. Okay, okay, I know what I you think, mean. I'm not saying it's the legitimate, you know, no, symbol of okay. Brussels, but I think most people know. It's called the Manica uh, piece. I asked my friend who speaks Flemish for the pronunciation, right? And the first reference of this fountain is from 1451. It's been there a long time. People make him outfits. Ah, stop. <laughs> no, they make them outfits, right? <laughs> there is a society that collects his outfits, a museum for the outfits, and they dress him in the outfits. The first record of an outfit is from 1619. <laughs> the oldest costume in the museum, 1747, Louis XV soldiers stole it, and then the population of Brussels was struck in disbelief so to make amends for this he the french king <laughs> i can't believe he didn't say this <laughs> decides to offer an outfit to manicapis and uh, it's this little outfit he has but you can look up the outfits i'm going to show uh, you my no. favorite one look i've Please taken a picture do. of my phone i'm going to i'm going <laughs> to uh, there's various different countries that do right. this okay. there is an irish one. Oh my word it's called irish fisherman and for people, go online and look this up. Basically, he's in a kind of paddy cap and he's got green trousers and he's got an iron jumper on. 
With a St. Patrick's Day rosette. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but like, if you didn't know that this thing existed and you're Irish and you're just on a stag party in Brussels <laughs> and you look around hammered going, Jesus, there's one of the tidy Clancy brothers in the corner there. <laughs> he has a thousand outfits. Like you dress like a toddler. We've established this. This toddler dresses like a man. There are Glaswegians who famously are very proud that they put them... Um, the, the traffic cone. The traffic cone on him, yeah. Sorry, yeah. but unless you're sewing bit buttons for a bronze, <laughs> tiny child's waistcoat, I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, is it now a kind of an offering that you as a nation would give to Brussels? Yeah, you can have nation ones. You can have folk ones. You can have... Um, oh, God. There's uh, Uncle Sam. He's fully in Uncle Sam. He's in John Bull. He is in Dracula. Look at this. That's Elvis. Oh, come on. He's got the full Vegas white suit on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, but he's God. also having a piss as well, we should well, say. Well, this is the other thing. Yeah, in every single one of these pictures Neil is showing me, he is, of course, slashing into the fountain because that's what he's doing. <laughs> well, now that I think about it, I mean, that's how Elvis died. So that could be shortly, <laughs> shortly before his death. Um, look, Dracula, he's in a proper wig. Oh, my God. Lawrence, incredible. Like, and then there's some kind of, so they can't be, so there's rules. And this place, it, it it's, the museum is called a, a museum, it's probably a museum, I suppose, Garderobe Manicapis. And uh, they receive about 20 or 30 new outfits per year after an official presentation and addressing, addressing at the fountain. The new outfit is then added to the museum's collection. The most disappointing thing is I've been yeah. in Brussels twice yeah. and I've obviously gone in downtime Yeah, because I've seen the statue, he's in the but nip. He was, he's in the nip both times. Yeah. And you, you can't, uh, apparently you can't have brand names and stuff like this. So like the, you have to write to the mayor and this, this committee and they make sure it's okay. You could never be like a, a 1980s Formula One driver, for example. Well, no, you could. Oh, you 100% could. No, but, I, but they were covered in sponsors. Oh, no, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you'd have to look like the Limerick Hurling team or Knott's Forest. You'd yeah. have to have nothing on you. But like some of them make sense. So there's some culturally like, say, Lawrence of Arabia and King David. But then yes. there's also Tim Robbins and John Matthews. No, there's not Tim Robbins. How do you dress up as Tim Robbins? I don't know. <laughs> I really think that the Belgians should have got in touch with the Irish in the 80s because we had oh, yeah. moving statues. We did. And they have dressed up statues so you put them together fashion show <laughs> this is absolutely incredible it's like one of the best facts you've ever told me yeah there you go <laughs> oh that's, i'm just disappointed i've never seen it right i need to plan my next trip to belgium to coincide with him at least being in an outfit uh, do you want to hear one last one yes of course antwerp home of the diamond trade right we know this oh yes of course yeah yeah 2003 you know i love heist films one of your favorite things to watch oh is Oh my heist. God. And if I haven't recommended all this already, I think I probably have Rafifi, this old French heist film, where the heist in the middle of the film is 30 odd minutes long and is silent. There's no dialogue and no music. It's unbelievable. Wow. Right. 2003, there was a diamond heist in Antwerp. They got about 100 million quids worth, 100 million dollars worth from the diamond center. This, this building had loads of safe deposit boxes were left open, right? If you're going to, like, you know, seclude and secrete diamonds in your city, I don't know, call it, like, the O'Brien building, you know, <laughs> uh, stone towers. But, like, no, the diamond center. I mean, the thieves didn't have to look very hard to find out where it was going to be. No, but it was thought to be completely impregnable. And they got so much stuff, they left their tools in the vault because uh, they had to carry the loot out. And I was listening to an interview with the policeman who solved it. 
and genuinely right there were green diamonds and gold and jewelry and stuff scattered on the floor and um there were so many gems scattered around the detective said we had to check the treads of our footwear right and the reporter didn't say you had diamonds on the soles of your shoes and i was like you're a disgrace for missing that opportunity but there's no lead right there's no leads and the reason i'm bringing this up is because of how they were caught there's no leads until a man called mr van camp rang them and he was in the habit i can't believe this is a real sentence of walking his weasels in a forest nearby (laughs) he had a strip of forest near the motorway and he walked his weasels he used to bring his weasels out the thieves had dumped this bag with loot in it in the forest and your man was always ringing the the cops going there's teenagers and they're and they're up there drinking cider and they're smoking and the cops went yeah yeah blah 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 and he went and there's there's they've left a bag this week and uh, it says diamond center in it and there's green diamonds and the cops turned up and were able to trace the thieves back oh my god and did they dump it thinking they would go back and get it or dump it because it was too heavy or dump it because they were on the road? Well, Do we know? The mastermind who was convicted for it, he said that he was off scouting a location when the other guy kind of in his gang lost his mind and just went, ah, just threw it out. <laughs> I've got too many diamonds. But she throws a diamond. But if you're a mastermind planning out a theft, like, do you think you ever go, oh, no, lads, I've planned for every eventuality. Every eventuality. Well, uh, alarm's going off? Check. Getaway car breaks out? Check. Man walking his weasel? Ooh. <laughs> what are the, the only thing I didn't think of. Oh, I had stoat, I had pine martin, and I had polecat, <laughs> but I didn't have weasel. It's always the little things that get you in the end, isn't it? <laughs> that is phenomenal stuff. What an episode of Wind in the Willows that would make. <laughs> Toad, what did you see today? It's a weasel on a lead. It's bizarre. (laughs) Followed by a trail of diamonds. It was really odd. (laughs) Right, so all of this Belgium stuff is because the guy we're going to talk about in part two was Belgian. Yeah, spent most of his time in that area. It wasn't called Belgium at the time, but yeah. So in part two, we're going to talk to Nicholas Crane about Gerard Mercator. And Nicholas Crane is a TV presenter, a sailor, an author, a geographer, and he would have done um, Coast on BBC Two. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? We are now joined by geographer, TV presenter, sailor, author, and Jared Mercator fanboy, Nicholas Crane. Thanks for joining us today, Nicholas. It's a pleasure to be with you. I started the podcast part one by saying the map in your school was wrong. The wall chart was wrong. Now, I said it in a quite sensationalist way, but we will get to that. But the big wall chart maps that we had in our school had a little line on the bottom and it said the Mercator projection on the bottom. So tell us who was Mercator who came up with this map? He was a, a cobbler's son. He came from very humble beginnings. He was born in a place called Gangelt in, in Germany in, in 1512, then moved to Flanders when he was a youngster. As, as a cobbler's son, you know, cobblers were the heart of the community back then. So there were information hubs. So he was used to a dad who was being told stories. And I think this is really where the beginnings of his kind of spatial awareness can be found. Um, and again, a family that was at the hub of a community. And uh, when he moved to Flanders in the Low Countries, he had been uh, orphaned. Both his parents died young, brought up by an uncle on the banks of the River Skelt, just upstream of, of Antwerp, which back then was the kind of the, the motorway, the, the main arterial conduit for, for trade and information through Northern Europe. And so he was picking up stories from absolutely everywhere about faraway places in the world. And, and this was the most densely populated part of Europe at the time as well, wasn't it? It was one of the richest and also famous for its, its education, uh, fantastic universities. And furthermore, these were universities that you could go to even if you came from a very poor background. Um, so so Mercator or, or, or Kramer, as his surname was when he, when he was a boy, was able to go to one of the best universities in Europe, and despite the fact his parents were dead and he had no money himself. So he, he matriculated at Leuven University and was given the best education you could get at the time. One of his, his companions in Castle College, the college he went to, was Vesalius, who became the yeah. world's first anatomist. You know, he was mixing it with other big names. But at the time, he was a complete nobody. I mean, he was he was just a young, very bright boy that 
uh, emigrant who came from Germany to the Low Countries, and uh, and he made the most of his time uh, in Leuven. He he was um, a, a teenager when he went off to university, but one of his his tutors was a completely brilliant mathematician called Gemma Frisius. And Frisius was a man who literally changed the world because he wrote the first treatise in the early 1520s on triangulation, which is the the method of surveying a landscape using a Euclidean geometry, wow. using triangles. Um, and uh, it, it revolutionized map making. And the Ordnance Survey in Britain was still using triangulation 50 years ago. It, it survived for 500 years as a method of surveying the landscape. And this was Mercator's tutor, math tutor. So you could, so he was with some really big brains when it came to, to mapping. Yeah, I was going to ask you, would, Nick, would it be the case that at that point in history, mapping was very important because we were just beginning to learn the extent of the globe effectively, that the kind of sea travel was happening, trade was happening, people were sailing around the world. But, you know, to, to everybody sitting at home in Antwerp or in, in the universities, it was really important to learn how the world was shaped exactly yeah there were, i mean i think there were two there are two prerogatives and one one was the practical one you you've mentioned which is that th- this was a time of you know, it's the age of discovery people were sailing from europe to far off lands and creating the first european maps of these lands and of course the europeans weren't the first people to go there America had been occupied by indigenous Americans long before Christopher Columbus ever showed up. And the same can be said of all the African coastlines that were being explored by Europeans for the first time. But of course, there'd been indigenous Africans there for millennia, hundreds of thousands of years. So the Europeans weren't the first there, but but Europe was, if you like, kind of accumulating a worldview from these explorers. And all of this information is flowing back being brought back by navigators, by sea captains to the European ports, one of one of which was, was Antwerp. And then somebody had to make sense of all this new data. So it was, it was like uh, a NASA, NASA sending off all of these rockets all over the all over the, the cosmos to bring back information. But there was nobody back home yet collating the data properly. Right. So Mercator ended up being the right man in the right place. This is the age of humanism. Um People like Erasmus and the you know the big Lutheran thinkers, the age is this Reformation, this great religious schism in Europe, and um, and there was a lot of interest in empirical knowledge and actually describing the world as it was before your eyes, rather than accepting a worldview from the Bible. So this is a really big moment, and Mercator was in very dangerous waters here because you know, age of the Spanish Inquisition and so on. Uh, so, but he was interested, as were many other humanists, in in creating a mathematical worldview based on what you could see with your own eyes. I'm glad you mentioned the schism there, uh, Nicholas, because in some ways we're lucky to have had him. He's clearly a genius, but he could have been killed. He was arrested in 1542 by the Spanish Inquisition, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was. It was the moment things ne- nearly came really badly um, apart for him. He was. He was part of a, a roundup of um, what the Inquisition thought were uh, Lutheran sympathisers. So he was accused of heresy. And um, in fact, he was, I I think, and I I thought about this for years while I was researching the book, I think his whole kind of game plan, his life mission was to occupy the neutral middle ground. Um, And I think that's that's so commendable. And and especially nowadays when we live in an age of, of, 
of extreme populism in politics and so on, and in this in an age when really really strong viewpoints are, are quickly adhered to through social media and so on. Whereas Mercator always took the view, and um, there are still people, luckily, around now who do the same kind of thing. Who o- occupied the neutral middle ground. We're prepared to listen to everybody, but not take a strong view, at least not in public. But of course, it's a very, very dangerous place to be because you're suspected of both sides of the, the extreme as, as being one of the opposite side. And as it happened, he was, you know, it was the Inquisition who rounded him up and he was locked, he was locked in Rupelmon Castle. And, uh, and he was, he, he thought he was going to die. I mean, the, the tortures were, he wasn't subjected to torture as far as we know, but most of the people he was arrested with were, were tortured and killed. So it's a very dangerous time. I think we've slightly glossed over one thing here, Dave. And if you think about um, what Nicholas is saying there when Mercator was born, right? He comes up with this map in 1569. We are using this map now <laughs> yes. for lots of things like the Ordnance Survey, like navigational charts that Nicholas as a sailor would use. We're still using this. If you look at where we can be downloaded on our little app on Acast, that's a map based on Mercator. And and if it was so wrong, why are we still using it? Well, why is it wrong is the question. Yes, it's a a tricky question to answer clearly, Dave. And the answer, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. Okay, so... There's only so let's start with the idea of a projection because this map, which was absolutely huge, it was two meters by nearly one and a half meters, so it's far too big to put in your pocket. We're talking about a massive, massive map that went on the wall, and it was printed, it was made up of 18 separate sheets you had to glue together and put, and you know, you had to have a big house to put on the wall, yeah. Now, it was really a geographical statement rather than a practical map, and what he was saying is that there is only one way. If you imagine, you know, the, the globe, the world as an orange or a, or a grapefruit or a melon, there's only one way of flattening it in such a way that a compass bearing remains the same whether you're standing on the curved surface of a sphere or you plonk that compass on the surface of a flat two-dimensional map. There's only one projection to do it. So a projection is a method of flattening something that's spherical, Okay. But there's only one way of doing it that allows the compass to remain the same on the flat map and on the deck of a ship. And it's like, you know, this, this was like the Holy Grail. It was, it was like an amazing breakthrough because, of course, the significance in navigational terms is that it meant that a, a seafarer, a ship's captain or a navigator could sit, in, sit at home, spread a map on his desk at home, plonk the compass on and say, yep, I'm going to sail on this compass bearing the whole way to America across the Atlantic Ocean, and I'm going to arrive precisely in that port. Once it got that that bearing, you know, let, let's say he was heading 245 degrees or whatever it might be across the Atlantic. All, once he just trans, he got on the deck of his ship with set his compass to 245 degrees, and the ship would, if he, as long as he stuck on that bearing, he would get to exactly the place the map told him he would get to. And there's only one projection that'll do that, and that's Mercator's projection. There are lots of other projections, but the reason that it stuck is that it had this navigational truth behind it. But it's got a huge flaw that you alluded to, Dave, which is that the method of flattening the 3D globe into a 2D map meant stretching the poles. Yes. So the North Pole and the South Pole occupy the full width of the map, which, of course, is bonkers. And it distorted every single country, every single landmass, and every single ocean was distorted in order to end up with this 
true loxodrome is called the actual the, the angle the, the the bearing that would remain true on 2D and 2D and 3D. Okay, so if the distortion was necessary from the point of view of maintaining this beautiful word you just given us the loxodrome, what were the results of the distortion? So we know the poles were stretched, but am I right in thinking because now you've reminded me that there's a website called the truesize.com which allows you to drag a country, which I assume, again, Neil, you'll tell me, is from the Mercator projection. That's the map <laughs> if, we're used can to. Can you do truesize.com for porn? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you can drag a country and drop it onto another part of the map to see, funnily enough, the truesize.com. And I think the biggest guilty party in all of this is Greenland, which looks at least the size of Africa, in Mercator's projection, but then you drag it and drop it down onto Africa, it's about the size of two or maybe three African countries at best. <laughs> oh, dear, you've just, you've just committed me to spending many evenings mucking about on another website <laughs> I haven't heard of. That sounds great fun um, and actually really useful. And uh, treesize.com is kind of the kind of basis for that idea comes from the 1880s in a projection called the Gold Peters projection, which was called an equal area projection. So that obviously, you know, one of the problems with Mercator's projection was that it did distort these land masses. So people would look at Greenland and say, hey, wait a minute, Greenland's not that mm. big, you know, so it's ridiculous. And so Gold Peters, two, two guys in the 1880s, came up with this projection called an equal area projection that mapped the entire world um, so that every land area was proportionally correct to all the other land right. areas. The problem is that it looked absolutely barking. So, you know, <laughs> you've got this very weird stretched, stretched countries that... Uh, so it just introduced another distortion, but at least the, the, the countries were correctly proportioned in relation to each okay. other. And for that reason, the, the, the Peters projections that became known in abbreviation was very popular among NGOs and charities and so on for, for many years um, through the 1980s and 90s. Okay. Mercator was aware, though, that his projection was wrong. He, he knew it was going to be used for navigation. He never suggested that it was, it was perfect in terms of equal sizes of land masses or countries. Yeah, you're right, Neil. He, uh, he. I think he was quite offended that people didn't understand what he'd done it for because everyone was so used to maps being a beautiful mathematical construct that you put on your wall back then. And when they looked at this map and they saw that the the northern and southern uh, extremities of the, the land masses were so stretched horizontally, they just thought, well, this is absolutely mad. It doesn't make any sense. We know that the North Pole doesn't fill the full width of the globe. And so they didn't understand what he was up to. And um, it was actually long after he died that the Mercator projection became adopted as, as a standard projection for, for mathematical use and for navigating generally. And um, But I think Mercator was a bit upset because actually on the, on the cartouche, which is the kind of decorative title on the map, he explains that it's just for navigation. It's a navigational device. And, you know, he'd made this incredible discovery, which was that, you know, the one projection that allows a compass bearing to remain true, whether you're using it in two dimensions or three dimensions. And it was just a moment of just incredible genius. If you think about how important that would have been to global travel. Oh, it's absolutely huge. I mean, it was, I mean, it was the single biggest cartographic breakthrough in 2000 years, the Mercator projection. It was absolutely wow. massive. And... Uh, you know, and then, and the reason that that NASA have used it to map the solar system, you know, Jupiter, Titan, they're all mapped on Mercator's projection. The guy who died five hundred years ago, and NASA is still using wow. the projection. Um, or you know, as you mentioned, you know, modern sailing charts. Um, you know, I, I muck about a bit in boats, and 
And the British Admiralty charts, which are the standard kind of blue and yellow sea charts you use for sailing along coastal waters, they're all mapped on Mercator's projection because you can't have your compass saying two different things, whether you're looking at it at home or on the deck of a ship. You want it to say the same thing in both places. So, you know, it was a, it was an amazing breakthrough. And um, and all the Ordnance Survey maps of Britain, Britain you know, the island of, of Britain itself is mapped by the Ordnance Survey, and, and they've used something called a transverse Mercator projection, which is a derivation of the Mercator projection. Um, in right. fact, I'm, I'm so obsessed by Mercator that um, did you both have idols, you know, people who you've kind of... Yeah, yeah. Dave is my idol. That's why I'm doing the podcast with him. <laughs> we haven't had any internet issues. It's just me. It's my own anxiety about talking to my hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if only that were true. <laughs> is Mercator your idol, Nicholas? Yeah, he is. I, I, do you know what? I thought, I, I think it, it, not as much for the map making, which was amazing, but for the fact that he occupied this middle ground and he expressed his, his love for humanity through these maps. You know, he was, I think they were, I think they were a statement of sort of adoration for, for, for hu- humanity. I think what's amazing about him as well is that he didn't travel though. He did all this by taking other people's info. Yeah, exactly. That and that and that's amazing. I I, I didn't realise that till I really dug deep and started researching. And um, and he's left a few mysterious kind of clues as to, as to what what he was up to. This, so okay, so I should skip back. So he produced this thing called the Atlas, which was a collection of what he called the modern maps, and um, and there are over a hundred of them, maps of the whole world in quite large scale. Um, and But there's only one of them that doesn't have a title on it. And I thought, why didn't he put a title on this map? And I, and I even bought my own 500-year-old copy of this map so I could have it at home and I've got it here where I'm sitting and I could look at it in more detail. And I realised that on this map, it was a map of the Low Countries and uh, uh, North Western. I'm not really good at compass directions. And Northwestern <laughs> Germany. And I realised that this particular map was the only part of Europe and the world he'd ever been in. So he spent his whole life just in what we now call Flanders or, or the Netherlands and the little corner of Germany. And he, in his world atlas, with all these hundred or so maps, all of them with beautiful titles, just one map didn't have a title, and it was the map that described his own life. And I thought, that's really, that's a real coded message from the deep past, you know. I think it was kind of part modesty, you know. It sounds quite humanist that he would he would design something, his projection, that would benefit humanity in so, in such a huge way. It sounds almost like this is a similar kind of doffing of the cap to that to go, look, this map here is my home. We don't need to make a big deal about this. Exactly. That's what he's doing. I think that's exactly what he's doing, Dave. I think it was a, it was a very modest expression through cartography. And, yeah. uh, and I admire him for that. As if all of this stuff wasn't enough, Dave, by the way. Nicholas has just mentioned that he had an atlas there. He's the first person to use the word atlas to describe a book of maps. That's not what it was called before. Really? No. Yeah. That in, in itself merits his place in our podcast. They didn't call it. It was after the god, the Titan, who was meant to be the first geographer. Isn't that right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. It's very cool, isn't it? You know, because we, you know, we take it for granted. It's like, you know, who, who coming up with the name dictionary for, for a book of word meanings. And he came up with the name Atlas for, for a book of maps. And, um, 
And it just stuck because he, he it was a very long convoluted title, including the word Atlas, as you say, had these classical connotations. And, um, and he collated in this, between these two hard covers, um, these hundred modern maps or over a hundred modern maps. And it was his final kind of dying expression of, of a world truth. This is what the planet looks like, he is saying. It's as much accurate information as I can accumulate at the time of my passing. He lived to the age of 82, which is twice as long as most people at that time. Yeah. And it's a remarkable book. And uh, in fact, but it was only a, a small part of a, a kind of life project. He, the, One of the most mind-boggling aspects of his life is that he tried to do something that would be inconceivable today. He tried to write the definitive description of the universe just imagine sitting down and trying to do that. Oh my God. You know, because nowadays, of course, we, we, we all specialize more and more, don't we? You know, we're going up yes. the direction. He actually wanted to write the definitive description of the whole universe. And so the modern maps were just one small part of that, but it still took him 10 or 20 years to put together. And, and then with it came lots of written descriptions about, he, he, he had a, a chronology that described the, the universe from its creation from, Obviously, he didn't know about the Big Bang back then, so he went back to the creation as described in Genesis, through to what Tim was a modern age in the 1500s. So this is this is like the uh, sort of you know I'm a great fan of novelist Borges, and it's like a kind of Borgesian invention that this, this mega book that would be too that would be bigger than the libraries it was meant to contain. There you go, Brian Cox. Aim a bit higher with your stargazing <laughs> and your explaining of black holes. You didn't try and write a book that explains all the knowledge of the world that we have gathered together, did you? <laughs> well, Nick, you, you said you travel by sea. Uh, I fly, as I told Neil in the early part of these, this podcast. However, I should qualify that by saying I fly by sitting on my sofa with an Xbox controller and I use Microsoft Flight Simulator. But I do often think of people, and obviously we couldn't have... Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020 without Mercator back in 1500s. But I do often think about and feel sorry for people like Mercator who, if he lived now, could sit there and fly an airplane to anywhere in the world in real time. As I was telling Neil, he was utterly bored by the fact that I do it in real time. <laughs> but, but, you know, but that, but that, of course, without him, you know, we couldn't do what we do today, but yet here we are, and it's wasted on someone like me drinking a cup of tea, eating a penguin bar, and flying to <laughs> Barbados. You know what I mean? I'm distracted by, by the idea of Mercator sitting at the, you know, in the driving seat of a 747. I'd be rather blown away by that. He certainly would. I think he's a man who is such a genius. Like, he's clearly an absolute genius up there mm. with Da Vinci in terms of his intellect. He would have come up with something else, Dave. If he was born now, he would fix AI yeah. or he would de design something incredible. Mm. I've got one last question for you, for you Nicholas. Um, what is the most accurate map that we have today? That there, If there's a fundamental problem of putting a 3D globe onto a 2D surface, is there any one that is kind of widely regarded by people like you as the most accurate? If we're looking at um, a world map, then I'm, I'm going to go for Mercator's projection because... It is the only map that allows a compass bearing to remain true, whether you're standing on the deck of a ship or on the land. But if you're looking at a, a kind of local map, then I'm very parochial. And I really, really do believe that the Ordnance Survey of Britain make 
the best maps in the world by far. I think they're completely wow. outstanding. It's, the, it's not so much uh, the information you put on a map that makes it usable. It's the information you decide to leave off a map that gives it clarity. So what kind of things would you leave off the map? Well, when you think about it, a map, you know, a, a map at a scale to one to one is going to have everything that, you know, in your living room on it as well. So you can have too much information. So you've got to reduce the scale of it and, and make it and leave enough blank spaces for the labels, the place names to be on there. And the, and the Ordnance Survey of Britain have, have managed to create the best fit between essential information and clarity. And uh, and they're beautiful things to look at, um, whether they're and the, and the, the kind of the publicly used scales of Ordnance Survey Map are 1 to 25,000, which are the popular walking maps, and 1 to 50,000, which are very good for motoring and, and kind of also very good for walking as well. And they're, they're beautiful things to look at, and they give you all the information you need to go for, for walks, which, after all, are things that we're, you know, we're very well adapted to walking bipeds. Absolutely. A one-as-to-one one map is a window. Yes, <laughs> good point. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. Also, I think if the Ordnance Survey were to map Ireland and they needed to leave something out, they'd just simply go, awfully, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> just forget, oh, just forget oh, that. Oh, oh, there's absolutely no need for that. Just because you fly <laughs> over it in your imagination, Imaginary plane that makes you a real pilot. You're no longer that's my hero I, anymore, Dave. Let me just tell you that. that. That's where I dump my toilet stuff from the plane. Nicholas, <laughs> actually, awfully. I'm gonna. This is an addendum. Actually, is there any chance if there was no Mercator that England wouldn't have invaded Ireland and we wouldn't be having this slightly tense conversation? <laughs> and I'm sure you're right. England wouldn't have been able to find Ireland. We'd never managed to get across the Irish Sea and land in the right place. Maybe. Yeah. Being Canada yeah. or Nova Scotia instead, yeah. Screw you, Mercator. You cause a lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas, you've been an absolute superstar. Thanks a million for joining us on the podcast today. It's really nice to spend the evening with you both. Cheers. Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Well, Dave, why would you tell me about Mercator that the maps are wrong, that I've got to use a website called the true size to get an idea. But you know what? Now I love Mercator because of how much Nicholas loves Mercator. He's a genuine genius, like up there with the inventors of amazing things that I had never heard of until I saw West Wing. And it's just bizarre that this giant of his field that has affected so many people 500 years later still um, that we hadn't heard of him. And so positively as well. Like it's lots of people have affected lots of people very negatively <laughs> yeah. in history. But Mercator, yeah. as, as Nick was pointing out, he his whole outlook was to help the humans, the, the humanist attitude and not pick a left or a right or a, one way or the other that he was just like, look, hang on, I've got this idea that I can solve the map problem we have with navigation and here it is. It's called the Mercator Projection. And I just think it's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, Nicholas has written a book called Mercator, The Man Who Mapped the Planet. So if you want to get really into it, you can uh, find that in all good bookshops or libraries. And it's it's one of those sliding door moments as well, because like of his co-accused, two women were buried alive. Another was burned at the stake. Another beheaded and another banished. This was all by the Spanish Inquisition, and he got away with all this. And he he, he got away. Isn't that kind of, it's? I mean, somebody would have figured it out eventually. But this is the dude 
Who did it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was phenomenal. I loved that. So what do you got for me next week? Neil, next week, I'm going to tell you about the time that Richard Branson drove a tank through Times Square and the project still failed. Well, you think if he'd gone to the trouble of hiring a tank, Dave, (laughs) I want to know what went wrong. I cannot wait. All right, well, tune in next week to find out. See you later. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.